be able to recognize these clinical manifestations and also be able to differentiate um, what's causing what's being caused by COVID-19 and um, between some of the treatments that we're using in these patients. Uh, we also are going to highlight some of the pen medicine um, guidelines and protocols that are out there and how to find them um, because this information is changing um, very frequently. As you all know, um, COVID-19 is a global pandemic that has affected at this point uh, over 20 million people, caused nearly 100,000 deaths. Uh, the U.S. has been hit particularly hard um, with over 5 million cases and uh, over 150,000 deaths. For patients that end up being hospitalized with COVID-19, the mortality rate um, for those that ha have oxygen requirements is thought to be around 20%. For those that require invasive mechanical ventilation or intubation, um, that mortality rate is thought to jump up to 40%. So that's obviously very significant. Um, fortunately, a lot of patients don't need uh, oxygen support. But some of the other things, in addition to the health consequences that we've seen, are the economic toll that this has played. Um, there is a significant um, rate of unemployment across the country, which will have uh, many downstream health consequences. And we've also been dealing with a lot of drug shortages in response to COVID-19, particularly with some of our um, drugs that are uh, critical for um, ICU patients. The uh, virus is transmitted primarily through respiratory droplets from person to person, uh, mainly through coughing and sneezing. Uh, it's highly transmissible, more so uh, than the flu. It can also be aerosolized in certain situations um, and procedures, particularly intubation. And um, a focus for us has been on uh, the potential aerosolization when medications are delivered through nebulizers. There's also some reports of um, potentially aerosolization through singing. I think the latest thing I read was uh, a bunch of campers that were singing in tents uh, or cabins. Uh, a lot of them ended up getting COVID. It can also be uh, transmitted through surfaces. Um, it's thought that this is probably one of the lower risk uh, ways that the virus is transmitted, but it can survive depending on the surface type for and be viable for um, hours to even you know, a couple to few days, depending on the surface. Uh, so that is uh, if the patient or if somebody then touches those surfaces and then their nose or their mouth or eyes, um, they can potentially get it. So for all these reasons, it's extremely important to follow um, our PPE recommendations uh, that the hospital has, and obviously hand hygiene is critical. If you do get exposed to COVID-19, you'll probably have a four to five day incubation period before uh, the onset of symptoms, if you are somebody that will be symptomatic. Um, those symptoms are generally very um, nondescript. Uh, and can be, be mild, so headache, fever, cough, um, 
nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, altered sense of smell and taste is another one that has um, been reported pretty commonly. Uh, patients that are going to progress to developing shortness of breath will usually do so around seven days after the onset of symptoms. And if those patients are then going to progress to having a more severe form of COVID, um, that usually is occurring around uh, 10 days after the onset of symptoms. As you all know, the spectrum of clinical course can range from completely asymptomatic, um, which I think we've probably all experienced patients that are tested for COVID and just found to be COVID positive without having any symptoms, um, to obviously uh, death uh, and severe uh, life-altering illness. Fortunately, 80% of the people that get COVID-19 will have a mild to moderate course and not require um, healthcare intervention. Um, about 20% of people probably will. 15% uh, of those are going to require, you know, general floor level care, while 5% will then progress to needing ICU care um, with respiratory failure and um, multi-system organ failure as well. There have been a lot of studies trying to identify who these high-risk patients are that may progress to needing more complex care. Um, and there are a number of reports. Um, a lot of them are highlighting common comorbidities that exist across the country. Um, being elderly, having underlying heart or lung disease, um, or multiple comorbidities is um, definitely one, are definitely all things that have been linked to uh, being at risk for worse outcomes. That being said, there are plenty of examples of young, seemingly healthy people that have gotten COVID and progressed to uh, having severe disease and, and that have died from COVID-19. So uh, these are good risk factors to know, but not uh, all-encompassing. There's a theorized biphasic disease progression that has been proposed with the early phase of symptoms um, really being due to the uh, viral replication that's undergoing and the potential um, downstream effects of, of that process, which then is thought to progress to the, this dysregulated inflammatory response, um, which the media and um, several um, articles have come out entitled cytokine storm, and this dysregulated inflammatory response is thought to be potentially driving a lot of the morbidity and mortality associated with this disease um, later on in the course. There's a slew of common classic COVID-related lab, lab abnormalities um, that I won't get into a lot of, but um, Commonly, uh, you, on the CBC, you'll see a uh, mildly reduced platelet count. Um, generally, platelets remain above 100. Uh, lymph, uh, decreased lymphocyte count has been linked to uh, potentially worse outcomes or patients at risk for worse outcomes. Uh, there are a number of coagulation studies that are potentially abnormal, uh, mildly prolonged APTTs, uh, significantly elevated D-dimers that may or may not be associated with um, thrombotic events. 
Um, and then, of course, the inflammatory markers uh, can be extremely elevated, um, commonly C-ferritins above the thousands, um, high CRP, and IL-6 has gotten a lot of attention as a potential marker for cytokine storm and potentially for drug therapies. COVID-19 is an RNA virus. Um, it binds to the ACE2 receptor through its spike protein um, and then uh, enters the cell where it undergoes viral replication and causes um, cell dis cellular destruction and uh, spread throughout the body. Uh, if you look at the figure on the right, you can see the ACE2 receptors, which we'll talk about a lot in this presentation, are distributed throughout the body with high numbers in the CNS, uh, very high in the respiratory and pulmonary areas, um, which explains a lot of the uh, respiratory symptoms that these patients will have in respiratory failure. There are also a number of uh, reports showing that there's high levels of ACE2 receptors in um, my, the myocardial cells, renal tubules, and in the GI um, enterocytes as well. ACE2 receptors are also distributed through the endothelial system, um, which may have important implications in uh, some of the microvascular and macrovascular thrombotic events that we'll talk about. When you think about the clinical manifestations of COVID-19, it really is important to have an understanding of the distribution of those ACE2 receptors, like I said. And with that understanding, it's easy to recognize that these patients can be affected literally from head to toe um, with, and for that reason, for this presentation, we, we thought the best approach would be to um, go through the clinical manifestations and some of our management by organ system. And with that, I'll let uh, Lauren take over. All right. So I'll be going over the first several organ systems. Um, first, we'll start with analgesia and sedation. Um, so Chase kind of touched on some of the general symptoms. A lot of these patients can have um, in a large retrospective study that was published in JAMA Neurology, it, the primary authors essentially looked at neurologic manifestations that are specific to COVID-19. You can see some of the similarities in the previous slides, but some are vastly different. Um, so commonly these patients can present with headache, anosmia and anguishia, which means the lack of smell and taste respectively. These patients can present with an impaired level of consciousness, similar to an encephalopathy, and this is largely thought to be an encephalitis picture due to the inflammation that COVID-19 can present with. Some patients have reported seizure, and lastly, stroke and vascular events, which is due to the hypercoagulability that we'll touch on in the later slides. So moving forward, in the ICU, we've observed a lot of patients required extreme amounts of analgesia and sedation during their ICU length of stay. Um, this can be due to really one of two or both of these risk factors that are populated on the slide. So on the left-hand side, um, one of these is due to the prolonged durations of mechanical ventilation. 
So in the news, you probably have seen this COVID ARDS picture that a lot of patients requiring mechanical ventilation might present with. So the severity of their ARDS, one of the initial managements of ARDS can be deep sedation. So targeting a RAS of negative four to negative five, and of course requiring increasing amount of analgesia and sedation to obtain that. The duration of intubation, um, around March and April, it was estimated that the median intubation duration for these patients was about 14 days, so much longer in length than our normal ICU population, and really the need for limiting repeated nursing exposure. So initially, because these patients were kept in isolation, we would keep them at a RAS of negative two to negative three to ensure the patients were not uh, awake, perhaps agitated and pulling out their lines and tubes, requiring many nurses to come into the room at once to sort of you know, help with these patients. So that was an initial therapy that we were targeting for these patients to reduce some of the agitation that might come along with this. On the right hand of the slide, we sort of talk about the patient population. So as Chase mentioned, a lot of these patients can be young and have a baseline state of health that is normal. So young patients can be hypermetabolic at baseline. They can also have a high respiratory drive. And it's theorized that the inflammatory response that COVID-19 presents with might lead to some tolerance of analgesic agents. So a couple months ago, the enterprise developed a analgesia sedation and neuromuscular blockade guideline that would take into effect some of the drug shortages that each of the institutions were dealing with. Um, so one of the highlight points of the article essentially mentions adjunct enteral and analgesics and sedatives may mitigate infusion requirements. So to preserve our analgesics and sedative agents that are you know, administered continuous IV, um, starting oxycodone or hydromorphone enterally, as well as clonazepam, lorazepam, and phenobarbital was one option that we were considering and using in clinical practice to preserve our supply. The second bullet point talks about early severe hypertriglyceridemia that has been observed with propofol. In clinical practice, we've been seeing a number of patients developed very high triglyceride levels early on in their propofol therapy. From anecdotal experience, I can speak to three patients that essentially were on average amounts of propofol, like 20 to 30 micrograms per kilo per minute, that had baseline serum triglyceride levels that were normal, and then 24 to 48 hours climbed to 800 to 1,000. So very rare that we would see that in a normal patient, but um, something you know that is noticeable amongst this patient population. So due to this, the enterprise uh, pharmacist essentially agreed to increase the serum triglyceride level to 800 milligrams per deciliter for discontinuation of propofol. And um, there are also articles that have found that the medium serum triglyceride level for development of pancreatitis is about 767. So the 800 closely mimics um, literature and what we've also seen in clinical practice. But for patients that have a triglyceride level above 500, it's recommended to monitor daily amylase and late pace levels to observe the development of objective markers of pancreatitis. Lastly, um, protocol mentions intermittent dosing of neuromuscular blockade can be employed. So we've been able to get away with bolus dosing of vacuronium um, if it's greater than a Q4 hour level in some of our advanced age patients that might have liver and renal dysfunction. And vecuronium and rocuronium are preferred due to the extended half-life compared to cisatricurium. So moving on to the cardiovascular system. So one of the interesting findings that have been reported in several case reports in young healthy patients at baseline is myocarditis. 
And a number of these reports, um, the findings are listed for here on the slide. So elevations in troponin I, uh, myoglobin and propion B levels. These patients that are seemingly healthy at baseline typically have a reduction in their ejection fraction. On echo, they can observe diffuse myocardial dyskinesia as well as the new onset of pulmonary hypertension. It's felt that most of these myocarditis cases that have developed in these patients are largely due to their viral replication or indirect systemic responses as a result of the inflammatory causes of COVID-19. So two theories behind this, the cytokine storming leading to vascular permeability and edema. And on autopsy on some of these patients, they actually have observed infl inflammatory infiltration into the myocardium. Another cardiovascular consideration is the development of this protocol, which is the use of fibrinolysis in acute myocardial infarction. So typically, fibrinolysis would not be the preferred therapy in patients with STEMI. Um, in most patients, this would be PCI. But this was developed in early March, where this was an option for patients that came in as a COVID rollout or uh, positive in nature. So the development of this protocol is essentially using tenecteplase as the preferred thrombolytic. Um, a couple snapshots on the bottom part of the slide are directly from the protocol. But essentially, you can see on the first box the process of if the patient is in the emergency department or in an inpatient area. Um, it's to be administered within 30 minutes of presentation. And then the ER is stocked within these two omnicells. Um, the one thing that's different amongst tenecteplase versus alteplase is that tenecteplase has a weight-based dosing, whereas alteplase um, is non-weight-based and a fixed dosing for the syndication. Moving on to respiratory. So there are three major sections that I'll talk about in this and are outlined on this slide. So the first are non-invasive ventilation strategies. Um, I think new to many of us when COVID started was this idea of using helmet CPAP. There is a picture essentially of what this looks like on the right hand side of the slide. Um, but essentially this is a CPAP machine that provides a tight air condition cushion, excuse me, for the healthcare worker protection. Um, this form of non-invasive ventilation was er tested early on in patients with community-acquired pneumonia and actually was found to have improved oxygenation compared to standard therapy. So this is kind of where this has first been tested, but as you have seen, I'm sure, on the news in Italy and many of the other European countries, this is one way that they were using to cohort patients by using the helmet CPAP and kind of grouping them all together while providing them oxygenation for each patient. So some of the limitations of this therapy is that a patient must remain upright, essentially for the helmet to remain intact and not shift around. Um, a patient has to be strict MPO while receiving treatment because even slipping like a drop-off tube um, can break the seal between the neck and sort of the helmet CPAP device. And it's very noisy. Some patients will complain that, you know, it's basically unbearable um, and that headphones are preferred to limit noise exposure during this. One of the more traditional treatments is using high-flow nasal cannula, but one of the biggest downsides of this is that it increases bioaerosol dispersion due to the high gas flows that are required for these patients. There are some reports that mitigation of this can be when a patient requires a surgical mask and is worn continuously while requiring high-flow nasal cannula. But again, one of the biggest upside is that patients, you know, universally tell you that this will probably be way more comfortable and tolerable 
than the helmet CPAP. So two non-invasive ventilation strategies that you might see in the inpatient setting. Moving on to some of the other respiratory considerations with focus on medications. So as Chase mentioned, we're typically using MDI formulations for albuterol and ipratropram. Um, as mentioned, nebulized formulations can increase the risk of viral particle aerosolization. This is not an absolute contraindication. We have seen in practice that some patients have benefited from inhaled epiprosinol due to refractory hypoxemia, but you should be discussed on a case-by-case -case patient basis with the interdisciplinary team. For those patients that were requiring MDI inhalers, they should be left within the patient's room, and this is so to prevent viral particles spreading to other areas or surfaces within the hospital. N-acetylcysteine has been used as a pharmacologic agent for mucolysis or therapeutic bronchial lavage in these patients. Um, early on, we were not conducting therapeutic bronchoscopies on these patients just to their risk of aerosolization. So N-acetylcysteine, essentially one to two mLs was implemented in the side port of an ET tube, um, essentially instilled for about one to two minutes and then sucked back up, where essentially it was thought that this could help with the mucolysis and trying to provide a pharmacologic bronchial lavage rather than the actual machinery. So you can see the dosing that is provided for you here. Last um, talks about corticosteroid use prior to extubation. Um, due to some of the unfortunate events that we've seen early on for patients that have developed severe airway edema and ultimately failed extubations, a protocol was put in place to essentially give a patient methylprednisolone 40 milligrams IVQ12 times two doses prior to the extubation to attempt to alleviate some of this airway edema within this population. I will say this is one protocol that is on the change with the recovery trial and dexamethasone use in a lot of these patients, but we will send out communication when that is finalized. Speaking of recovery, um, so we'll talk about a lot of the steroid uh, controversies and what has seen and been upcoming in the literature in the past couple months. So very early on, a lot of the attendings I've worked with and you know even some of the co-workers I've worked with as well, um, thought that corticosteroids might benefit a state of dysregulated systemic inflammation that we see with COVID-19. So we are trialing this very early on. Um, certainly the recovery trial that was published a couple of weeks ago in the New England Journal has gained a lot of popularity. And interestingly, this is one study that has shown a mortality benefit with dexamethasone use. So in short, the recovery trial was a multi-center randomized open-label prospective trial. It included hospitalized patients with clinical or suspected and confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. They randomized these patients in a two to one fashion to the usual standard of care plus dexamethasone. You can see the dosing here of six milligrams PO or IV daily for up to 10 days. In patients that required oxygenation greater than 10 days, they tapered the regimen thereafter. They did not describe what this taper regimen looked like, but essentially to the point that they required unassisted breathing. Their primary outcome was 28-day mortality, and several secondary outcomes include the time to hospital discharge, mechanical ventilation, and death. So as stated, this trial is uh, pretty significant because it did observe a 28-day mortality with patients that received dexamethasone compared to the standard of care. Um, while the difference of 3% may not seem 
significant, um, it really is when looking at the mortality rate that we mentioned with patients requiring supplemental oxygen as well as invasive mechanical ventilation in patients that require COVID-19. So interestingly, the couple bullet points on this slide, um, the benefit was observed in patients receiving mechanical and or non-invasive ventilation. So a greater benefit in this patient population to patients that did not require oxygen um, and the timing of more than seven days after onset. Uh, Chase sort of talked about the biphasic nature. So whether that, you know, corticosteroids might be more efficacious in the cytokine storming portion of COVID-19, uh, maybe one thought, but it's really unknown why this is only observed maybe in this patient population and at this time point. Additionally, the same sort of um, results were observed with a shorter duration of hospitalization. And again, the greatest benefit observed in patients with mechanical ventilation at baseline. So in clinical practice, we've definitely seen an uptake in this trial where, you know, almost all patients requiring either non-invasive ventilation or mechanical ventilation will be started on dexamethasone, six milligrams IV or PO daily as well. I'd like to touch on just very uh, two brief trials that have been conducted in the past before recovery came out of some of the other steroid dosing that we were utilized that has been studied in non-COVID ARDS. Um, so if you're very fine, you know, orders down in central, you might see a methoprednisolone-based regimen, although this is, you know, pretty rare with the recovery trial results and use of dexamethasone, as well as the DEXA ARDS studies. And I'll take it back to Chase. All right. Um, so in addition to a lot of the respiratory symptoms, a... Um, as I mentioned, the ACE2 receptor is widely distributed in the gastric, duodenal, and rectal epi epi epithelial um, cells. And for these reasons, uh, GI symptoms are not uncommon in patients with COVID-19. There was a large meta-analysis um, that included over 6,000 COVID patients, and around 15% of them had GI symptoms, the most common being abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and a loss of appetite. And in patients that end up, ended up requiring hospitalization, this was sort of the initial uh, presenting symptom in about 10% of them. Uh, the GI symptoms seemed to be a little bit um, short-lived and with the average time being around four days. Um, so it's not uncommon for a patient to be admitted say, with a history of um, diarrhea that has progressed to now shortness of breath. But by the time they're on your team, they are um, their diarrhea is generally seems to resolve pretty quickly. Um, there's also uh, an association with elevated LFTs seen in COVID patients. A uh, decent number of them, around, up to 20%, have uh, more so of a hepatocellular uh, liver enzyme picture than uh, a cholestatic picture. The etiology of this is is not well understood, like a lot of um, things in COVID-19, but it's thought to probably be multifactorial um, from an, an potentially inflammatory process versus ischemic from a if the patient has uh, shock or even uh, thrombosis. Um, and also the thing we always have to think about as pharmacists is whether this is a drug-induced liver injury. Um, 
as a you know basic pharmacotherapy principle here, it's uh, appropriate to use antidiarrheals in these patients. Um, uh, but I think the big thing here to focus on is uh, recognizing uh, that yes, you can see liver function abnormal or LFT abnormalities in COVID patients, but that it is a little bit less typical than some of the other um, clinical manifestations. So being on the lookout and not just attributing uh, these to COVID uh, without fully assessing uh, the potential for a drug-induced liver injury. Uh, it's also pertinent to our the use of remdesivir because uh, LFTs greater than five times the upper limit of normal is a uh, contraindication for uh, this drug. So that's important to recognize. Um, also, just as a general principle, it's important to, to know that LFTs are um, not a good marker of the uh, synthetic function of a person's liver. Uh, for those, it's really more important to look at albumin, INR, and even platelets. Uh, unfortunately, all of these things, those things can be affected by COVID-19 as well. So that can certainly complicate that picture. But um, looking back at previous uh, labs, maybe from uh, their baseline before they had COVID, can be helpful in those scenarios. The uh, renal manifestations of COVID-19 have uh, gained a, quite a bit of attention. Um, for one, this is in uh, generally an at-risk population. If you think about, you know, some of the comorbidities that are associated with um, uh, having a COVID course that requires hospital care. Um, so there's already that one uh, factor. The other thing um, that has been shown is that these patients that do progress to needing hospital care have a pretty frequent incidence of AKI, 40% um, in patients that end up needing ICU level care. And um, it's very much associated with poor outcomes and mortality. Um, I've had several patients progress to um, being end-stage renal requiring the initiation of dialysis, uh, even on the floor. The etiology of the kidney injury is, uh, again, incompletely understood, but thought to probably be multifactorial. Uh, a lot of these patients are unwell for days before coming into the hospital. They may have a reduced intake if they have uh, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, all those things can lead to a hypovolemic state, which can lead to a prerenal tubular injury, um, which generally will improve with fluids. Um, those that progress to a more uh, prolonged renal injury are thought to probably have um, intrinsic renal injury or uh, acute tubular necrosis, which is often due to ischemia from shock, uh, leading to prolonged hypoperfusion of the kidney. Um, there are also distribution of ACE2 receptors throughout the uh, renal tubules, and there are some uh, autopsy reports showing that the viruses uh, can definitely infiltrate and cause direct cytotoxicity there. And then generally this, uh, you know, extreme inflammatory state can lead to um, decreased perfusion and, and uh, tubular injury as well. So all of these things can 
um, work, be working together to cause significant AKI that uh, may potentially lead to and be associated with worse outcomes. Uh, from a pharmacy standpoint, I think the key thing here is recognizing that, um, you know, renal function is going to be critical for a lot of the medications that we're, we're dosing. So recognizing uh, CKD versus an AKI, knowing where the baseline uh, creatinine is and looking for a trend uh, to try to anticipate um, the developing of renal injury looking at BUN and then if available to you, looking at urine output is a, a, another great opportunity to kind of get a sense of how the patient's doing. Um, again, this is important for dosing our drugs. Also looking at um, fluid administration. I think this is a, the COVID population is one that you have to be conservative, but also uh, in some patients and aggressive in others. Um, because you worry about overloading these patients with fluid from a respiratory standpoint, and many of them have comorbidities that make them at risk for fluid overload, but you also want to make sure that they have um, fluids to uh, appropriately perfuse their end organs, so um, a definite balance. Uh, also, you know, there's been a, a good amount of literature early on, or uh, not, I wouldn't say literature, there have been some reports early on um, cautioning the use of NSAIDs in COVID, but saying it may be linked to worse outcomes. I think that that has been generally debunked, with the exception of, um, I will say that we are very cautiously, if ever, using them in our COVID patients that require hospitalization mostly because of the risk of kidney injury that already is exists for the reasons I was just talking about. And we're trying to avoid nephrotoxic agents, uh, if at all cause, if at all possible. Uh, and then from a volume standpoint, NSAIDs can um, lead to hypervolemia. So again, another reason to probably avoid them in this population. The, from a Remdesivir standpoint, it's uh, the creatinine clearance cutoff is 30 milliliters per minute. So that's important to know. And, you know, another reason to, at all costs, avoid nephrotoxic agents. There, there's been a lot of report early on about whether we should be holding or uh, discontinuing ACEs or ARBs in patients that have COVID-19. There was a, some reports of theoretical risk that was thought to be due to um, patients that are on ACEs or ARBs may have increased expression of the ACE2 receptor. And that is thought to, um, if you continue those agents, uh, you're increasing expression of ACE2 receptor and potentially uh, increasing viral entry, which would logically potentially um, lead to worse outcomes. Now, there's also a theoretical benefit of continuing ACEs and ARBs in these patients or even starting them, uh, which I believe is under study, um, but to kind of, it's a little bit more abstract, so you have to take a step back and think about the physiologic role of ACE2, which is actually anti-inflammatory by breaking, facilitating the breakdown of angiotensin 2. So, understanding angiotensin 2 
is a potent mediator of inflammation, vasoconstriction, vascular remodeling, and uh, stimulating thrombosis, all bad things. Um, so recognizing that ACE2 decreases angiotensin 2 um, can help you understand here that if you, uh, when you consider that when a virus infects an ACE2 receptor, it actually causes downregulation so increasing the number of ACE2 receptors, uh, which then, when you recognize that ACE2 decreases angiotensin 2, may lead to a dysregulated angiotensin 2 um, activity, which would be bad. So ideally, if you continue the RAS blockade, you may tamper the adverse effects uh, of angiotensin 2. It's a little bit more complex, but uh, I think equally valid uh, of an argument. The bottom line is, and I think there's actually, you know, several studies that have come out, one uh, in the last week saying that have not shown any increased risk of harm in continuing ACEs or ARBs in these patients, and um, they should be cl continued if clinically appropriate. Um, so, and, you know, part of your general uh, evaluation of the appropriateness um, you know, looking at renal function, holding in the setting of AKI or, uh, you know, very low blood pressure from their acute infection. Um, but if indicated and remain, they remain clinically appropriate, they should be continued. Uh, and I think that, that there's more that, that you know, the long-term effects of COVID-19 COVID um, on cardiac function uh, may even further validate that point. From an ID standpoint, um, a lot of these patients will come in and get broad-spectrum antibiotics in, in the emergency department, which to um, their credit is not uh, wrong because these patients can appear very sick and have imaging that is very concerning for uh, bacterial infection. Uh, but the reality is that the rate of bacterial or fungal co-infection is very low and the majority of patients that end up that have COVID get broad spectrum antibiotics, um, but ultimately do not need them. Um, I think that the, the evidence does show that patients that do end up getting back bacterial co-infections will um, are generally getting those infections later on in their hospital course. So generally not on admission. There's some Stanford data that shows a, a relatively high percentage of viral co-infection, um, but I have not seen that validated in other studies to this point or uh, to date. Uh, we are using procalcitonin quite a bit in these patients to try to differentiate between uh, isolated COVID-19 infection and uh, potential other bacterial infection, particularly with pneumonia. Um, Procalcitonin is generally not elevated in COVID-19. Um, obviously, there are caveats to go to procalcitonin, especially in the renal disease population. But um, generally, a stark negative procalcitonin can be very helpful in uh, facilitating the early discontinuation of antibiotics. What we've learned from COVID-19 is that evidence-based medicine is extremely important. Um, 
and it it really comes down to the fact that in vitro data does not always uh, link to in vivo or real life success. And I think you can look at hydroxychloroquine uh, with or without azithromycin is a great example of that. Uh, early on, we were using the uh, hydroxychloroquine here, um, but evidence has come out. Uh, multiple studies, randomized controlled trials now have come out and shown that their the risks of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin outweigh the benefits uh, of this therapy. Uh, with hydroxychloroquine, there's actually an antagon uh, in vitro, uh, so a potential antagonistic effect with remdesivir, um, which we I'll get to in a second. But spoiler alert: we know remdesivir has some potential has benefits in these patients. Um, so really, despite what um, has even recently been reported uh, and conspiracy theories are, are out there that hydroxychloroquine is effective. I think that the evidence is very clear that it is not, uh, even in mild uh, COVID-19. Uh, so it is not recommended and we do not use it here. Um, lopinavir, vertonavir is a similar story. Uh, potential in vitro benefit, but the uh, randomized control trial showed that there really isn't uh, a benefit there. And there's a, a later study that showed uh, using this agent um, led to, uh, was associated with some bra increased risk of bradycardia in, in COVID-19 patients. So again, not recommended. The, the jury's still out on tocilizumab, uh, which is a, an IL-6 inhibitor. So it's thought to be targeting not the viral replication process, but the uh, dysregulated inflammatory response, and also a, a convalescent plasma study that um, we are participating here in, in at Penn. Um, so these are, they're taking plasma of patients that have recovered from COVID-19 and uh, seeing if there are benefits there. Some early reports that maybe there is uh, some benefit. Remdesivir is our uh, mainstay of antiviral therapy. It's a nucleotide analog um, that, again, inhibits viral replication. The main evidence is coming from the ACT-1 trial, which is a randomized controlled trial, placebo-controlled, uh, in patients that are hospitalized with COVID-19, hypoxicon, hypoxicon room air, um, requiring either invasive or non-invasive uh, uh, respiratory support. They were given remdesivir 200 milligrams on day one, followed by 100 milligrams IV on days two through 10, and that was compared to placebo. They had over a thousand patients in the trial uh, with the primary outcome of time to, to recovery. Um, and the length of hospitalization in the remdesivir group was 11 days, which was uh, statistically significant uh, benefit compared to a placebo with uh, their length of stay of 15 days. Uh, I think if you think about four, four days of hospitalization, uh, at first, it, you know, that may not be a, uh, you know, super clinically meaningful outcome, but I think if you really do think about it, um, that is, uh, I think, a very significant finding. Uh, four days of hospitalization is uh, a big deal. When they looked at mortality, there was a, a non-significant reduction uh, of about 4% in the remdesivir group. Um, I, 
you know, whether the, that outcome would have been statistically significant in a larger study is unknown. Um, uh, some would say that it probably would have been, and uh, maybe we'll know that in the future. At Penn, we're, uh, well, I guess the duration of remdesivir treatment is uh, either five or, or 10 days or until hospital discharge. Um, and there was an open label trial in patients with severe COVID-19 uh, comparing five versus 10 days. And um, they did not see a difference in clinical status at day 14 between the two treatment arms. Um, based on this, we are using a shorter course in a lot of our COVID-19 patients. The key exclusion for that open label trial that you have to think about is they did not include anybody that required mechanical ventilation or ECMO. And um, so for those patients, uh, the evidence still probably suggests that they uh, should get 10 days of remdesivir. At Penn, right now we're using remdesivir not in a clinical trial setting, but uh, under the emergency use authorization. And these patients are required to have a COVID-19 positive test within 96 hours um, and have severe disease, which is defined as being uh, hypoxic on room air or requiring some sort of uh, ventilatory support or ECMO. Um, and then chest imaging that suggests pulmonary infiltrates. Um, again, the five versus 10 day course is dependent on disease severity. And I talked some, a little bit about some of these uh, contraindications uh, with the LFTs and renal, based on LFTs and renal function. Um, also patients that are terminally ill should not get remdesivir and um, there's an extracorporeal cytokine absorber, absorber called Cytosorb that um, may potentially uh, pull remdesivir out of patients. So uh, that is considered a contraindication to getting remdesivir. And if you have any questions about that, I would refer you to Megan. Uh, she's our expert there. All right, so moving on to endocrine considerations. With the relevant use of dexamethasone with the recovery trial, we've seen quite a bit of hyperglycemia um, in patients with or without diabetes at baseline. So typically we're using intermittent insulin regimens. One of the biggest downfalls of using continuous insulin regimens is the requirement of glucose checks every hour, so increasing nursing exposure to a patient as well. Um, some example regimens in which we're using are uh, long-acting insulins with insulin glargine, uh, a combination of short-acting with regular insulin and rapid-acting with insulin aspart, and checking the serum glucose every four to six hours. Um, largely, this is, you know, kind of variable of using insulin glargine versus regular insulin. Um, some of the caveats that you might want to think about when Choosing a regimen is certainly if a patient is on a helmet CPAP, they're going to be MPO for quite a bit of time. Um, so probably using something with insulin aspart scheduled might be preferable to long acting, but uh, variable situations that come up that would craft a patient's insulin regimen. So moving on to anticoagulation. Um, so quite a bit of attention has been drawn about the hypercoagulability of COVID-19, which we'll talk about in the coming slides. 
But um, it's thought that critical illness by itself may predispose patients to an increased risk of venous and or arterial thromboembolism. Some of the identified risk factors include excessive inflammation and COVID-19 specifically, as um, stated throughout this presentation. Hypoxia, uh, you know, intensive care patients typically have some sort of lack of mobilization during a portion or, you know, the duration of their ICU stay, depending on their clinical scenario, as well as uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC that may be observed that may be the thrombotic type. So several studies have reported uh, quote unquote higher rates of thrombosis within the COVID-19 population. Uh, between three studies, which I've pulled in the past couple weeks, it's been reported about 21 to 33 percent of these patients that have received standard BTE prophylaxis have still yet developed thrombotic complications. I think, uh, you know, kind of depending on who you'll talk to, um, a lot of, you know, doctors will say, you know, our septic patients probably have the same incidence, if not higher. It's just never been described in a large cohort study. So I think the ICU community is still out whether this is truly a higher incidence of thrombotic risk versus perhaps the same risk that we see in these ICU patients. I think, you know, one of the biggest downfalls of these three studies is that compliance to their VTE prophylaxis regimen is not reported. So whether that had effect on their outcomes or not. As Jason mentioned, uh, a lot of these patients will come in with elevated D-dimers, but it's important to know that this has not been correlating to an increased VTE risk. So a lot of studies have talked about what the, the potential alterations in the coagulation cascade are from getting COVID-19. So in a lot of articles, they've talked about this biphasic reaction, which we've sort of talked about the, throughout the duration of this presentation. But essentially, it's thought from day zero, which would be symptom onset to day seven, a patient has an observed reduction or normalization of their lymphocyte count. Um, lymphocytes are on the surface of ACE2 receptors. So when COVID-19 binds onto ACE2 receptors, they can cause apoptosis of the cells. So kind of alluding to that reduction in lymphocyte count that may be observed. But from day seven to day 14, this biphasic nature and the cytokine storming is observed amongst a lot of these patients, whether they have inflammatory markers that are elevated on admission or on day seven, something that we've definitely seen in clinical practice. Uh, but the theorized pathophysiology behind this is, is essentially the surge of inflammatory mediators and cytokines that might increase blood viscosity and relate to venous or arterial thromboembolism risk. So we've talked about this a little bit, but objectively you can see a decreased lymphocyte count, platelet count, as well as an elevated prothrombin time and D-dimer in these patients as a result. So there are two sets of anticoagulation guidelines within the enterprise. I'll be touching on the inpatient portion of this, but essentially the enterprise has developed a three-tiered approach to VTE prophylaxis via standard intermediate or therapeutic dose, Lovenox or subcuheparin, and the dosing here is provided in the chart. Um, essentially, this will be stratified based on if a patient has a suspected or proven VTE, what their risk of clinical deterioration, as well as their risk of bleeding. This is kind of left up to the provider and the team to decide. Typically in the ICU, we are either seeing intermediate or therapeutic dosing regimens in these patients. Um, typically, you know, we've been using a lot of intermediate dose because we have seen some catastrophic bleeding events in patients that were placed on therapeutic 
enoxaparin or sub-Q heparin uh, initially and then develop sort of these bleeding events thereafter. But again, this is kind of up to the provider and what they would like for these patients. I think exempt scenarios is important to note. So um, unfractionated heparin only should be used for epidural spinal anesthetic patients. Um, so this is just one caveat to consider that the protocol um, would not be applicable to. prophylaxis. Um, very quick, once daily regimens for stress ulcer prophylaxis are preferred, again, to limit nursing exposure on formulary lansoprazole or famotidine every 24 hours if a patient has a creatinine clearance less than 50. Uh, thromboembolism we sort of talked about, but less frequent regimens are preferred. So if a patient has a creatinine clearance greater than 30, once daily anoxaparin were feasible in those patients. And then Chase will be talking about uh, post-discharge thromboembolism prophylaxis in the next slide, which again is an expert opinion recommendation. Hey, yeah, so this recommendation really comes from uh, the unknown hypercoagulability that comes with COVID-19 and it's really unrecognized how long um, that hypercoagulability may persist. Um, there is limited evidence in the medicine population that uh, extending DVT prophylaxis after discharge, and this is in non-COVID patients, may actually may reduce um, uh, the incidence of thrombotic events, uh, with also uh, a a significant increase in bleed risk. So uh, it's generally not something that we do for. Uh, the medical population, but um, there is evidence supporting its use uh, in the right patients. Uh, and it, it's the the experts at Penn and at many institutions across the country have um, determined that these patients may uh, benefit. So the inclusion criteria for extended prophylaxis is patients that are hospitalized with COVID-19 for greater than or equal to three days. Um, and are considered low bleed risk uh, by their clinical team and have a creatinine clearance greater than 30. Um, I will point out that, you know, it has been brought up what about patients that are found to be COVID positive, um, but are a completely asymptomatic and are hospitalized for more than three days. For example, if they come in um, from for a surgical uh, procedure and are found to be COVID positive, um, do they require or should they be prophylaxed at discharge? And the answer is uh, thought to be probably not. While uh, they may actually be at increased risk, we don't know. Um, but at this point, the uh, expert opinion is that those patients should not be given extended prophylaxis. Um, we're generally doing enoxaparin for 40 milligrams daily or rivaroxaban 10 milligrams daily. And um, the studies of extended prophylaxis in, in the medicine patients really had variable length of uh, prophylaxis after discharge, and it included a lot of the hospital days. Um, to clarify, the uh, anticoagulation group came up with a uh, flat duration of 30 days, uh, regardless of length of hospitalization. Um, so things that we need to be thinking about, of course, are renal function, and that applies to both anoxaparin and rivaroxaban. 
and for rivaroxaban uh, screening for drug interactions. Uh, the major ones you're thinking about are the, you know, potent uh, CYP3A4 and P glycoprotein inhibitors or inducers. Also, rivaroxaban, um, you know, is hepatically metabolized uh, to a significant extent. So these are not agents that we're using in patients that have a child pew class B or C liver uh, disease. Um, there was a post-hoc analysis of the Magellan trial, which is an extended prophylaxis study uh, with rivaroxaban, and they identified uh, certain factors that were associated with bleeding. Uh, these, to me, are uh, generally not contraindications to extended prophylaxis, but considerations, uh, because patients, you know, that have active cancer are uh, you know, at high bleed, higher bleed risk, but also are at higher thrombotic risk. Um, so I think that that's a risk versus benefit discussion that needs to occur. Um, patients that are on dual antiplatelets were found to be at higher bleed risk, and then they were subsequently excluded from the Mariner trial, which is a follow-up uh, extended prophylaxis study. And for me, uh, I, this is a contraindication. I, I don't think that patients on dual antiplatelets should be uh, given triple therapy, even at reduced dose DOACs um, at discharge based on the limited evidence, uh, you know, that we're working with here. Um, bleeding, significant bleeding history is another important consideration. Um, other things that I think we need to be thinking about are uh, platelet count. Um, so really, you know, Patients that have platelets that are around 50 or less is uh, really a, a strong consideration where the risk of bleeding may outweigh any potential benefits. Uh, also, your underweight patients may be getting more drug exposure than, uh, than is really um, anticipated or warranted. So that's another uh, important consideration. From an operational standpoint, um, I think Lauren, Lauren has a couple things to go over. That's almost it. Yeah, so um, last but not least, to cluster medication administration times to prevent excessive nursing exposure to these patients, we touched on the once daily medications when feasible under you know the various different pharmacotherapy regimens. And then, of course, with the remdesivir EUA process, um, just being aware that the provider should request use through curator is the appropriate form of verification and approval for this medication. And important to know that patient consent is required prior to administration of this drug. So here on the last couple slides are several of the protocols that we've referenced throughout the presentation that are enterprise protocols for the Penn Medicine Health System. And with that, we will answer any questions that you may have. Hey, it's Andy. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Um, for regarding the extended prophylaxis, the 30 days chase. Do we count from, do we include the hospital stay? Like, do we minus those days that they've been in the hospital for like five days, they get 25 post-discharge days of anticoagulation? 
that that was in the initial recommendation, but I think that that led to a lot of confusion. And the bottom line is, we don't know. Um, you know, there's really no evidence guiding what to do here. So the re it was revised to ex recommend us a flat 30 days, regardless of inpatient duration. And then I guess I have a follow up. Um, so when the providers make a decision whether they think that they require intermediate versus therapeutic anticoagulation, I've had some providers that like ask us for like what they, we would do, and I'm not sure if they look at certain um, like I don't that D dimers weren't associated with anything. Um, what what do they look at for parameters to help guide their decision? Do you, have you seen anything? So in the on the floor, and I'll let Lauren speak to what they're doing in the ICU. Um, the question that when they asked me what if they should be on standard or intermediate or therapeutic anticoagulation my question back to them is do you and do you foresee this patient potentially progressing to need icu care if the answer is yes um, then i am we are putting those patients generally on intermediate dose uh, anticoagulation um, we're very seldomly giving therapeutic anticoagulation on the floor uh, unless there's a very high suspicion for uh, clot. So the answer, the question, the answer to your question is: uh, Does a is a patient on an ICU trajectory? If so, or are they extremely high risk for a thrombotic event? It's all very subjective. Um, so if the answer is, to, is yes to that, then we're doing intermediate prophylaxis, um, but there is no clear cut criteria. Yeah, I would say in the ICU, typically we're doing intermediate dose for most patients unless they have an indication for therapeutic. Um, I touched on a couple of the catastrophic events that we've seen in patients that have been put on therapeutic anticoagulation just upon their admission to the ICU. Um, and so because of that, I think with anecdotal experience, and I don't want to speak for the other three critical care pharmacists, but my preference would be intermediate dose um, universally. The other, the other thing I will just add to that is um, this, a discussion that we had today for a patient was they had ruled out PE, but were still considering therapeutic anticoagulation um, because the patient was considered low bleed risk and uh, on the higher end of thrombotic risk uh, and was looking like they may need ICU care. Um, so they were leaning towards the uh, full dose anticoagulation. My counter argument was that, you know, if we're following the PEN guidelines, if you make that decision, then uh, the recommendation is three months of full anticoagulation um, and from there, uh, I think that the bleed risk associated with that intervention, you know, in the absence of a really strong indication is significant. And, and that, that comment kind of made them uh, change plans and, and stick with the intermediate prophylaxis strategy. Thanks, guys. Those are great answers. Thanks, Andy. 
All right. Well, if you guys have any additional questions, feel free to email Chase and I, but thanks for attending today.